Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church family. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Judges. I'll meet you there in just a minute. Uh, the, the bustling metropolis of Belleville, Ontario was in the news uh, over the last couple of weeks. A woman by the name of Maxine Olive uh, set a Guinness Book a World Record. She took a, a, a Ravensburger puzzle, 40,320 pieces, and she completed this puzzle in 150 hours, uh, breaking the previous record of 423 hours. She took this massive puzzle and was able to put it all together. Now, whether you're working on like a 500-piece puzzle or a 1,000-piece puzzle or a 40,000-piece puzzle. The, the key to being able to put those pieces together is to have access to the top of the box. If you can't see the top of the box, if you can't see the big picture, you're going to have no hope of, of, of understanding how one piece relates to the other. And loved ones, that's really what we're trying to do in this series, the storyline of Scripture. So often in our personal devotions and so often when we listen to sermons being preached, we're, we're, we're just looking at one little piece of the puzzle and, and we can get confused about what the Bible says about certain things or about what is happening or how God is relating to his people when we're only looking at one piece at a time. And so our aim here is to look at the top of the box, to look at the big picture, to put all of the pieces of the puzzle in their proper context. And so as we've been going through uh, the New Testament so far, I just want to explain to you how, how the Old Testament is put together. The Old Testament doesn't come to us just sort of in, in an order that we might expect. It actually comes to us according to category. Just like when you would walk into a library or a bookstore, the, the stacks of books, the shelves are arranged according to category. You would have cookbooks over here. You would have poetry books over here, history books of fiction or nonfiction, books about sports, books about business. They would all be arranged categorically. That is how the Old Testament is arranged as well. Let me show you uh, what I mean. The, the first five books of the Bible are, are, is what comes at us at the beginning because these were all written by Moses. The first five books are called the Pentateuch, which just means penta, five, and tuch means, means books. So the first five books are the, the story of creation and then the story of redemption out of Israel wandering, sorry, redemption out of Egypt, wandering through the through the uh, wilderness to the edge of the promised land. Then the book of Joshua begins the next section, the history section, which we're going to be looking at today. And then there's a poetry section and then a prophetic section, which is divided by the major prophets and the minor prophets. Now, up until now, the, the books of the Bible have been laid out sequentially. Genesis and Exodus, they, they appear one after the other according to the chronology of the story. But when we get into the history books, the history, the poetry, the prophecy all starts to overlap. Let, let me show you what I, what I mean. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all the way to Joshua all flow sequentially. But when we get into the book of Judges, we, we learn that the book of Ruth was happening concurrently 
concurrently with the time of the judges. Also, when we get into 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we see Psalms that are being written at that same time. 1 Chronicles retells a lot of what took place in 1 and 2 Samuel. And so this helps us put the pieces of the puzzle together, that the books of the Bible, the books of the Old Testament particularly, begin to overlap with one another. And that's going to be important for us to understand if we're going to put the storyline together properly. So up until now, we started in in Genesis. Adam and Eve were created by God. They were put in a place of paradise in the Garden of Eden. They rebelled against him. But they were given a promise that one of the offspring of the women would come and crush the head of the serpent that tempted them and deceived them. Then God made a promise to a man named Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that he would bless him, that he would give him a specific piece of land, the promised land. And then in Exodus, we're told about the rescue of God's people from slavery so that they could enter into that promised land. And then we came to the book of Joshua, where Joshua fought these battles against places like Jericho, and they entered into the promised land such that we come to the end of Joshua 21 verse 45 that's where Joshua says not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass and so in in some sense there's 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 this sense of conclusion there's this sense of wrapping up the story the people are in the land that part of the promise has been fulfilled But there's many other promises. We still haven't seen that offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. We still haven't seen the nation of Israel be a blessing to all the other nations. And so today we're going to be looking at a different different group, a different section of the puzzle. Several other pieces that need to fit together the issue of kingship. Kingship. The title for today's message is Give Us a King. Give us a King. A king. We've looked at puzzle pieces surrounding covenant, puzzle pieces surrounding the promised land, puzzle pieces surrounding freedom from slavery and freedom from sin. And now that God's people are in the land, they begin to look for someone to lead them and to rule over them. And as our, as our message begins today in the book of Judges, we're going to examine a period of time where there was no king. If you're taking notes today, the first point for today's message is this. It's just simply no king. The book of Judges tells us what life was like when there was no king in Israel. So turn with me in your Bibles to Judges a chapter 2 and find verse Seven Judges begins with Joshua still being in the picture. He's still alive and well. He's leading the people and helping them in the promised land. And it says in Judges chapter 2 verse 7, it says this. It says, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So while Joshua was alive, he kept them focused on the covenant. He kept them focused on obeying God's law. He kept them focused on worshiping God through the sacrifices at the tabernacle. But then when we look down to chapter 2, verse 11, a new generation has risen up. And the older generation was not faithful in teaching the, the, the new generation how to follow God. 
So in Judges chapter two, verse 11, it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now look at verse 14. It says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and they gave them over, sorry, he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges. That's what this book is about. These judges that God raised up who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods and serving them and bowing down to them. So here we see in Judges chapter two, we're given an outline, a structure that reoccurs and repeats all throughout this book. We, we can see, let, let me break it down for you in a, in a bit of a chart. It started with disobedience. Number one, they turned away from the Lord after Joshua died. And so God brought discipline. Look at verse 14. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies which caused them to, to a time of desperation and repentance. That's number three, verse 15. They were in terrible distress. And then we see God bring deliverance, like verse 16. He raised up judges. So chapter two tells us this is the pattern. This is the cycle of how it's going to work. But pay careful attention to verse 19. Whenever the judge died, they turned back. And notice this, they were more corrupt. It's not just a cycle. It's a downward spiral that's taking place. The, the judges initially, the people initially, it doesn't seem like that bad of a situation. They, they rebel a little bit and they cry out to God and God delivers them. He raises up a judge and the people don't seem that bad and the judges seem actually pretty good. It starts off okay. Judges like Ehud and, and Shamgar and, and, and Deborah, a, a female judge, Othniel, all of these judges at the beginning seem to be decent moral people who wanted to follow God and lead the people well. But then things really begin to turn for the worse. And the real turning point centers around a judge named Gideon. It's really with Gideon where we see things start to go downhill. We see the people becoming more corrupt and we see the judges become more corrupt. Now you might be thinking, well, I thought Gideon was a good guy. I thought, I thought the story of Gideon was a story of faith and God coming through. Listen, that's part, that's one puzzle piece. But we need to read the other puzzle pieces around that puzzle piece and fit it into the rest of the story. So turn with me to Judges chapter 6 and verse 1. J Judges 6 verse 1 says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So here we have disobedience. That's the beginning of the cycle. And then we have discipline. Now the Midianites are ruling over the people of God. Then we look at, at Judges chapter 6 and verse 6. It says, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people cried out to the Lord 
for help. So the cycle continues. Disobedience, discipline, and then they repent. They cry out to the Lord. So the Lord raises up Gideon. And I'm not going to retell the familiar part of the story for you, but you know how it goes. The fleece and, and the wet fleece and the dry fleece and the jars and the torches and the, and the drinking of the water and the army getting reduced and God coming through in a great victory. But these were the days where there was no king. And after Gideon wins this great battle with such a small army, he does something really interesting. He goes and tries to build a bigger army. Even though God provided this miraculous victory with only 300 soldiers, he starts recruiting a larger army. And then the people that refuse to join his army, guess what he does? He starts killing them off. He was, he was supposed to be a judge that would, that would save his people, and now he's killing his own people. And the people are sort of in dread of him. They want to sort of please him. Look at what they say in Judges chapter 8, verse 22. Judges 8, verse 22, it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, notice this, Rule over us. You and your sons and your grandson also. What are they asking for? They're asking for a king. They want Gideon to become the first king of the people of Israel. The Midianites had a king. All of these other enemies that were defeating them, they all had kings. They wanted a dynasty. Gideon, you rule over us. Your sons, your grandchildren, they wanted a dynastic king. They wanted a monarchy in Israel. They want this. At the end of verse 22, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. He says the right thing. I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. He says, the Lord will rule over you. So Gideon here says the right thing, but, but that he's betrayed by his actions. Look at verse 24. Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you, every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So he asked them for all of their gold. Look down at verse 27, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city. Does this sound familiar? Asking the people of God for gold and then making something. He makes an ephod. That was sort of the garment that the priests were supposed to wear. Gideon didn't wear the ephod. He just sort of set it up in the city. And then as you keep reading in the story, it says it became, at the end of verse 27, it became a snare to Gideon and his family. The people started worshiping this golden article of clothing. This is going all the way back to the base of Mount Sinai with Aaron and the golden calf. Give me all your gold. Let me melt it down. Let me make something. And this becomes an idol. So Gideon says he doesn't want to be a king, but he starts taxing like a king. He asks everyone to give them the gold. He tries to steer them in the wrong direction in terms of worship. He has a son. He names his son Abimelech, which means the king is my father. Melech means father. Abi means Sorry, Melech means king, Abi means a father. So with Gideon, we start to see he started well, but then there's a decline. 
things start to turn for the worse. And then as the story of judges continues to unfold, we have these really wicked, immoral judges who are, who are raising up and, and are being led. Judges like Jephthah, who didn't understand the history of God's people, who didn't understand what it meant to make a vow before the Lord and thought he had to kill his own daughter to, to make things right with God. We have, we have a judge like Samson, who was a, a wicked disobedient to his parents and and misogynistic, treated women like objects and had a horrible temper and was ruled by, by the flesh. The judges get worse and worse. The people get worse and worse. In fact, by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, I mean like parental advisory is required. It's so awful. There's no more mention of who is judging the people anymore. But the things that take place the, uh, the, the rape, the murder, the dismemberment, the civil war, the, the mass planned abductions of, of, of innocent, vulnerable females. Listen, it's unbelievable the way the people of Israel have wandered. So much so that really the only literary comparison to the end of Judges is the description of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. They're that bad. And then the author sums up at the very end. The book just goes nowhere. Everything just seems to be falling apart. At the end of the book in Judges 21-25, the author says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Loved ones, this is what happens when we don't have, there was no king. They weren't letting God rule over them as king. They didn't have a God's promised king to rule over them. Listen, when we reject authority, when we reject the authority of God's kingship in our lives or in our culture, we are living in a social experiment right now where we are telling everyone, just do whatever is right in your own eyes. We know how the book of Judges ends. And listen, we can be pretty clear about where our culture is headed in terms of a downward spiral as we have rejected God's authority. As the book of Judges ends, we're introduced to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled. We studied the book of Ruth earlier um, uh, in the ministry year leading up to Christmas. It's this beautiful uh, love story between a, a Moabite woman, Ruth, and, and, this, and her, uh, her fiancé, husband, uh, Boaz. And this carries the story along, establishing the family line, the lineage for God's promised king. But before we hear about the promised king, we're going to move from no king to the wrong king. And that's what the book of 1 Samuel is all about. It tells the history of the wrong king. Samuel is the last judge and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are named after him. Uh, he, he, he dies in 1 Samuel, but in it, the, the, his name belongs to the second book as well. The people recognize that they have a need for the king. They, they, they need someone to rule over them. As Samuel begins, we realize that not only have the judges all become corrupt, but the priests have become corrupt as well. We're introduced to Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
They were the priests. They were the ones who were supposed to offer sacrifices. They were the ones who were supposed to pronounce the blessing. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And yet they didn't know the Lord. And look down at chapter 2, verse 17. It says, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. The men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They didn't care about the offerings. They just went through the motions. They were selfish. They were wicked. They were sexually immoral. These were the the leaders during this time. And although Samuel had sort of redeemed the role of a judge, he brought righteousness and goodness. The priesthood was falling apart. It was falling apart so much so that when Israel was fighting a battle against the Philistines, Hophni and Phinehas, these evil priests, brought the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle, marched it to the front lines of the battle like some sort of good luck charm, thinking that if we have the Ark of the Covenant with us in the battle, that we'll somehow win. Well, they didn't win. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10 says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel had fell. Verse 11, And the ark of the Lord was captured. The two sons of Eli and Hophni, sorry, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is, this is the lowest point in the in the in the history of the people of God. The Ark of the Covenant is now in a foreign land. Two priests have been slaughtered along with 30,000 other soldiers. Someone, when they heard the news that was taking place, they declared, Ichabod, the glory has departed. The story is over. This nation is, is, is never going to be rebuilt. How could this ever be destroyed? Or how could this ever be rebuilt? It's, it's so destroyed. Well, the Philistines in chapter 5, verse 2 and 3, they put the Ark of the Covenant in their temple to their god, Dagon. The next day they wake up and Dagon's bowing down before the Ark of the Covenant. So they prop up their fake god again. And then the next day, the Dagon, he's, he's, he's been taken apart. He's lying there in pieces in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So the Philistines want nothing to do with this, with this golden box. And so they hook it up to a cart and a couple of cows. And they say, wherever, wherever the, these cows go, we just want it away from us. And it leads them, the, cow leads the, the cows lead the Ark of the Covenant right back to the promised land, right back to the people of Israel. So then Samuel calls all the people together as a judge. Look at 1 Samuel, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. 1 Samuel 7, verse 3. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods. They're, they're still working on commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Golden calf, Gideon's ephod, all of the idols in the land of Canaan. Samuel, it's just one sermon time and time again. Put away the idols. And then he says, and the the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashroth and they served the Lord only. So there's this call to repentance. Again, Samuel 
is trying to point the people towards the Lord. Then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8. The people, they start thinking, well, I think the reason why the Philistines always have an advantage over us is because they have a commander-in-chief. They have a king. They have someone that's, that's courageously leading them and telling people where to go and what to do. We need a king. And so they ask Samuel, give us a king. That we want to be like the other nations. Samuel goes to the Lord. The Lord says, you know what? What they're doing, they're actually rejecting me as king. And God says, Let's give, we're going to give them what they ask for. They want a king like the nations. So Samuel warned them about the consequences of, of what they're asking for. Samuel said in chapter 8, verse 19, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. Notice this, that we may be like all the nations. They wanted to be like the Remember, remember Exodus 19, God brought the people on eagles' wings so that they could be set apart as God's chosen possession, that they would be different from the other nations. And yet... They want to be like the nations. Listen, God wasn't opposed to the idea of kingship. I mean, he told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1:26, have dominion. You guys are supposed to be kings, queens over the whole earth. He told Abraham in chapter 17, verse 6, that kings will come from him. Genesis 49, verses 8 to 10, Jacob prophesied that there would be a king that would come from Judah. Deuteronomy 17 outlines how a king is supposed to rule and reign. This is... This is while they're still journeying to the promised land, God is already laying out guidelines for how the king is supposed to rule. Look at this on the screen. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. God says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, God says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Verse 18, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them. You see, God's heart was, yeah, I'll give you a king. Having a king is part of my plan, but this king must be centered on my word. This king must be centered on obeying the law himself and then helping the rest of the nation. The people in 1 Samuel 8 don't care about that. They just want a king like the other nations. They just want to win battles. They just want a sense of security. In fact, the king is really just another form of an idol. They thought that they could have security and victory and power and strength if they trusted in this king rather than trusting in the Lord. God's whole intention was, yeah, I'll give you a king, but this king is going to help you trust in the Lord. He's going to help you follow my law. So God provides a king for them. His name is Saul. And in chapter 10, verse 23, it says that he stands head and shoulders above everyone else, that he's handsome, he's strong, he's tall. But Saul fails miserably in his role and responsibility. Remember Deuteronomy 17, the, the, the principal job of the king is to follow the law, to have his own copy of the law, to read it every day and to make sure that he's following it. Well, God told 
Saul that he needed to carry out a specific mission against the Amalekites. These were people who attacked uh, Moses and, the, and those who were wandering in the wilderness on their way to Sinai. And God wanted to bring vengeance on these people, the, the Amalekites. And Saul failed in carrying out that mission. Just like Achan, who kept some of the spoils of Jericho to himself, Saul kept some of the spoils in the battle of Amalek for himself. He failed to follow the word of God, which is what a king is supposed to do. And then, then he, 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 he's not only failing as a king, he tries to overreach outside of his realm of responsibility and acts like a priest and tries to offer a sacrifice. And so Samuel tells him in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 13, 1 Samuel 13 verse 13, he says, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. That's job number one for a king in Deuteronomy 17. Keep the command of the Lord. It says, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You did not follow Deuteronomy 17. You did not follow the law of God. You offered sacrifices you weren't supposed to offer because you're not a priest. You didn't carry out the mission that God had given to you. You have disobeyed and therefore your kingdom will not continue. And he, and he says, God has appointed a man after his own heart, the promised king. So we've looked at life with no king. We've looked at life for the people of God with the wrong king. And now we're going to look at the promised king. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. Go and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. The horn full of oil. Oil was, was how you anointed someone as king. You would pour the oil on their head to symbolize that this is God's chosen one. This is the king. Priests were anointed with oil. Kings were anointed with oil. Even prophets were anointed with oil. This is where the word Messiah or Christ comes from. It means to be anointed, to have oil poured on your head. So God tells Samuel, go get your horn full of oil. And he tells him to go to a specific place, to go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the setting for the book of Ruth. Remember, all these stories overlap. And Ruth tells us the story of Ruth meeting and marrying Boaz. And they have a son named Obed. And then they have a grandson named Jesse, who's referenced here in 1 Samuel 16. God sends Samuel to Jesse's house because from among Jesse's sons, He's going to anoint a king. So they were now on this journey of the promised king. But look at what Samuel says to God when, at verse 2 when God tells him to go to Bethlehem. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. You see, here's the, here's the sticky thing. Saul is still king. And there's not going to be a smooth transition of power. Saul is not going, to, not going to give up easily here. And so Samuel is very concerned. And God says, listen, I'm going to handle it. So we come down to verse 6 of chapter 16. And 
Jesse's got all of his sons there, presumably. Verse 6 says, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so he looks at son after son, and God's like, Nope, 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 nope. And then Samuel's kind of confused. I mean, I'm supposed to anoint a son of Jesse. I've looked at all the sons of Jesse. And then Jesse's like, oh, wait, yeah, sorry. They're, they're, we, we have another son, but we didn't even really, we didn't think he was king material. We didn't really invite him. He's, he's, out, shepherding, he's out shepherding our flock. And Samuel says, well, let's get him here. And that was David. It's amazing. The star of the show isn't even invited to audition. The franchise player doesn't even get, get invited to try out. And yet he is the chosen one. And so he gets anointed with oil. God's word says that the spirit rushed upon him. The spirit left Saul. And we come to chapter 17. And this is, again, this is another piece of the puzzle that we're so familiar with. The story of Goliath and David fighting against Goliath. Now we need to remember Saul is the closest thing Israel has to a giant. He's head and shoulders above everyone else, but Saul is powerless against Goliath. So David goes in there with a sling and a handful of rocks and he goes to the, he goes to Goliath and he challenges him. Goliath is so big and all of this detail about his armor, he seems unbeatable. David says in chapter 17, verse 45, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And David, he had a handful of rocks. He only needed one. He wins this majestic battle on behalf of the people of God. Then in chapter 18, verse 7, we see how the people respond. The people thought they were helpless against the Philistines. They thought there was no way anyone could beat Goliath. And in chapter 18, verse 7, they start writing pop music about David. And this is the, this is the top song on Spotify, on the radio. It's the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Remember, Saul's still king at this point. David has been anointed, but Saul is still functioning as the king. Verse 8, Saul was very angry at this saying, and it displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And from here we see Saul descend into paranoia and in myopia. And he is only focused on himself. And he is convinced that David is against him. He tries to kill David multiple times. He tries to get his children to kill David. So David eventually runs away and hides in a cave. Now, as I mentioned before, the stories and the books of the Bible at this point begin to overlap with one another. And so as, as Judges unfold, so is the book of Ruth. And as 1 Samuel unfolds, we see some of the Psalms that are actually being written. If you look at Psalm 57, 
Psalm 57 verse 1 says, in, in the notes at the beginning, this is inspired text. It says a mictum, that's some sort of musical term, the type of song, a mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. This is, this is written during the time of 1 Samuel. David says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high who fulfills his purpose for me. Loved ones, what was the storms of destruction for David? It was Saul chasing after him, trying to kill him. But David knew that God had a purpose. He was the anointed king. He knew he could trust in God's promise that he was going to get through this. And we see how songs of worship encourage the people of God as they write them, as they sing them, as they repeat them. How singing is such an important part of who we are and what we do as the people of God. Think about Mark's baptism testimony earlier in the service about how he was struck by the words in a song. We see how the different genres of scripture, we see how the preaching of the word of God and the telling of God's story and the singing of God's glory, how all of these things fit together to build up God's people. We don't have time to go through all of the rest of the details of 1 Samuel, but Saul eventually dies at the hand of the Philistines. The whole reason why the people wanted Saul was so that he would defeat the Philistines, but he was powerless to defeat the enemy that the people wanted him to defeat. And he ended up becoming an enemy to his own people. So then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5, it's in verse 1 it says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, you, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd over my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. And so what had been done privately by Samuel many years earlier is now being done publicly as David is now the king, the promised king, the man after God's own heart. But the story doesn't end with David. Now we have the promised king and the, the promised land and the people are there. And David starts to, to, to continue to win battles. He establishes the city of Jerusalem as the capital city. He sets up the government there. He builds himself a house there. He moves the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. He wants the Ark of the Covenant to be at the very center, the very heart of where the people of God are. And David wants to build a house for God. In chapter 7, verse 2, it says, The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the Lord God, he dwells in a tent. David says, this isn't right. We need, we need to make a permanent place for God to dwell. He's brought us. We're no longer wandering through the wilderness. He's brought us to a permanent promised land. And so now we need to build him a permanent temple. And then God tells David, look down at verse 12. 
God tells David, listen, you're concerned about building me a physical house. God says to David, I'm going to build you a spiritual house. I'm going to build your family tree. And, and let, me, let me tell you something, David. I've made promises to you and about you, but let, let me give you an even greater promise. In verse 12, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David wanted to build a physical house for God. God says, listen, it's not you and it's not yet. He says, one of your offspring is going to build a house for me. And this promise in some ways is fulfilled. We'll look at this next week. Is fulfilled in his son Samuel, or sorry, his son Solomon. But Solomon did not reign forever. In fact, Solomon didn't finish well. Truth is, truth be told, David didn't finish well either. You see, this promise goes to an even bigger promise. There's a temple that's even bigger and more important than the, the physical temple that Solomon built. You see, what God does here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is he establishes another covenant with David. In Psalm 89, remember, the book of Psalms is being written in conjunction and describes events that were happening in First and Second Samuel. Psalm 89, verse 20, 28 and 29 says, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. That means he's the king. My steadfast love, I will keep for him forever. Notice this, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Now let's look at our diagram of the different covenants that we've been following, the different puzzle pieces that fit together. Remember, there was the Noahic covenant. The sign was that, that this rainbow, that God would never judge the world in that way. Then the, the covenant with Abraham, the sign was circumcision, this idea of the land and becoming a nation and a blessing. Then the Mosaic Covenant, which worked both ways. It wasn't just unilateral, it was, it was bilateral. And the sign of that was the Sabbath. And then now we move to David's covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where God is promising David that one of his offspring would sit on his throne forever. And so what we see here is God's promises getting more specific as the storyline of Scripture unfolds. Let me, let me show you uh, what I mean. Do we, have a, do we have a diagram that has the seed of the woman? I know I added that last minute. Maybe we don't uh, have it. So let me just orally describe it for you. It started with this broad promise that a seed of the woman, some human being, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Then it narrows down into a descendant of Abraham, one of his offspring. Then it narrows even more at the end of Genesis 40, uh, 49, verses 8 and 10. We have, it's going to be from the tribe of Judah. Now it narrows even more. It's going to be one of David's offspring. Seed of the woman, descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Judah and a direct descendant of David. Now, why does all of this matter? Again, let's look at the top of the box. Let's look at the big picture. Let's look at the whole story. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. The first words of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Hearkening back to the covenant of 2 Samuel 7. Hearkening back to the covenant and the promise of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. 
When Gabriel appeared to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, it says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He's God's Son. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. So he has God as a father, Son of the Most High, but he also has David as a father. And he, look at this, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. This is the fulfillment of that promise made to David. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem at Passover, and the people shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What do they say next? Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The people recognized in that moment. I mean, even the blind beggars in the city of Jericho were saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everyone knew that Jesus was, was one of the offspring of David. That's why they had so much hope in him. And so Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. People cry Hosanna. And we think he's going to be the one who's going to establish the kingdom. Let's put a crown on his head. Let's put him on a throne. And instead, they put a crown of thorns on his head and they put him on a cross. And this offspring of David who's supposed to go and win the great victory, it seems as though he has lost terribly. It seems like Ichabod. It seems like the glory has has departed. It seems like a horrible defeat. That's the way man sees it. But as God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, God does not see as man sees. When we see the crown of thorns and when we see the cross, we think it's over. God says it's not over. I will fulfill my promise to Abraham and to David. And Jesus is his offspring. And he will rise again and bring the greatest victory of all. So when we come to the book of Revelation, to the very end of the story, as we're looking at the top of the box, Revelation 5 verse 6 says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Not just the offspring of David. The offspring comes, comes from David. But the root is before David. The root, he, so he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered. And he says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You see, God does not see the way man sees God sees Jesus with the crown of thorns, not a golden crown and not on a throne, but on a cross. And we see defeat and God sees victory. There's a lamb as though it's slain, but it is standing. And then at the very end of Revelation, Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says this. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David. The root and descendant. He is David's offspring, and he's also the the source from which David flows. Jesus is the greater David. He is the ultimate promised king. And just like David fought an unbeatable enemy while all of the people stood powerless to defeat Goliath, David went and won an unthinkable victory. And when all of us were powerless against death, Jesus, the greater David, took our sin and our shame, took the punishment that all of us deserve, died in our place and rose to glorious life 
so that we could abide with him. Just like David brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem to dwell among the people, Jesus brings the presence of God by the Holy Spirit to us. He is the greater David. He is indeed the promised king who has won the greatest of victories. Loved ones, this is the top of the box. This is how all of the puzzle pieces fit together. It's Christ, our promised King. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for your promised King. We thank you that you have woven together this beautiful and majestic story, Lord, that is so intricate, that, that so precisely down to the very details fulfills the very promises that you have made. And God, I thank you that we can be found in the story. That the, that the root and the descendant of David is coming again and that he's coming for us. And so Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts Lord, that, that what has just occurred would not just be, be merely the, the transfer of information, but that it would actually result in transformation, Lord, for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.